today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. And we're going to do a little bit of jumping around, but I will explain my rationale shortly. But Mark, chapter 6, beginning with verse 1 through 16, and then over to verse 30 through 56. Jesus went away from there and came to his home region. His disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. When they heard him, lots of people were astonished. Where does he get it all from, they said. What's this wisdom he's been given? How does he get this kind of power in his hands? Isn't he the handyman, Mary's son? Isn't he the brother of James, Joseph, Judah, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? He took offense at him. Prophets have honor everywhere, said Jesus, except in their own country, their own family, and their own home. He couldn't do anything remarkable there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and cured them. Their unbelief dumbfounded him. He went around the villages teaching. Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out in pairs giving them authority over unclean spirits. These were his instructions. They were not to take anything for the road, just one staff, no bread, no bag, no cash in the belt, to wear sandals, and not to wear a second tunic. Whenever you go into a house, he told them, stay there until you leave the district. If any place doesn't welcome you or won't listen to you, go away and wipe the dust from your feet as evidence against them. They went off and announced that people should repent. They cast out several demons and they anointed many sick people with oil and cured them. Jesus' name became well known and reached the ears of King Herod. It's John the Baptist, he said, risen from the dead. That's why these powers are at work in him. Other people said it's Elijah. Others said he's a prophet like one of the old prophets. No, said Herod when he heard this, it's John. I cut off his head, and he's been raised. The apostles came back to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. All right, he said, it's time for a break. Come away, just you, and we'll go somewhere lonely and private. Crowds of people were coming and going, and they didn't even have time to eat. So they went off privately to the boat to a deserted spot, and crowds saw them going, realized what was happening, hurried on foot from all the towns and arrived there first. When Jesus got out of the boat, he saw the huge crowd and was deeply sorry for them because they were like a flock without a shepherd. So he started to teach them many things. It was already getting late when his disciples came to him and said, look, there's nothing here. It's getting late. Send them away. They need to go off into the countryside and the villages and buy themselves some food. Why don't you give them something? Jesus replied. Are you suggesting, they asked, that we should go and spend 200 dinars and get food for this lot? Well, said Jesus, how many loaves have you got? Go and see. They found out and said five and a couple of fish. 
Jesus told them to sit everyone down, group by group, on the green grass. So they sat down in companies by hundreds and by fifties. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, looked up to heaven, blessed the bread, broke it, and gave it to his disciples to give to the crowd. Then he divided the two fish for them all. Everyone ate and had plenty. They picked up the leftovers, and there were twelve baskets of broken pieces and of the fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. At once, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and set sail across towards Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. He took his leave of them and went off up the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea. And he was alone on the shore. He saw they were having to work hard at rowing because the wind was against them. And he came to them about the fourth watch of the night, walking on the sea. He intended to go past them, but they saw him walking on the sea and thought it was an apparition. They yelled out. All of them saw him. And they were scared stiff. At once he spoke to them. Cheer up, he said. It's me. Don't be afraid came up to them and got into the boat, and the wind stopped. They were overwhelmed with astonishment. They hadn't understood about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. They made landfall at Gennesaret and tied the boat up. People recognized Jesus as soon as he got off out of the boat, and they scurried about the whole region to bring sick people on stretchers to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, in villages and towns or in the open country, they placed the sick in the marketplaces and begged him to let them touch even the hem of his garment. And all who touched it were healed. This is the word of God for the people of God. God is good. All the time. We need that once in a while. We need that reminder that God is good. Several decades ago, a young man from England came to the United States for a holiday and a breather just before his career back home was about to take off. Clicker is going to know where I'm going with this. He had family from around Mount Vernon, Illinois, so he actually stayed in this area. He had a penchant for visiting local hangouts and would occasionally play music for the crowds that were there. On one such occasion in Benton, Illinois, he played at a local establishment, and the local musical know-it-alls, the ones that thought that They knew everything that there was to know about music. All encouraged him and said, you're really good. You need to go professional and asked if he wanted to start a group. Believe he told them thanks, but that he already had a group. He later went home and George Harrison, lead guitarist of the Beatles, would never again enjoy anonymity in the same way again. As we continue our study of Mark's gospel, we see that there is this general buildup of tension. I've talked about this a few times now. 
both between Jesus and the dark powers of the world, represented by both oppressive secular rulers and also evil spiritual demonic possessions. But there is also this buildup of tension over one big question. Who is this guy? As we get close to the halfway mark of the Gospel of Mark, there is going to start to be a push to determine who Jesus is. Now we get the luxury of inside information. We get to see behind the curtain a little bit, as it were. Mark himself introduces his gospel as the story of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We get to know who Jesus is. But we also get to see the drama unfold of how Jesus, through action rather than words, demonstrates his divine origin. In a couple more chapters, we will see the climax of this particular part of the drama when Jesus asks his followers, Who do you say that I am? For this chapter, we start to see people puzzle over who this Jesus is, and in particular, how to respond to him. So the passage that I read here, and I'm going to explain the part that I skipped here here in a minute. I, I skipped it for a reason, not because it's irrelevant, but mostly for time, and also kind of for the flow of, of what I was wanting to read. But essentially, we're going to get four examples of responses to Jesus. Actually, five if you want to count them in, in another way. So from the very get-go, at first, we have Jesus. He is in his hometown. This is the town that he grew up in after his family came back from Egypt. It's the town of Nazareth. And he comes in and he's teaching in the synagogue. He is doing some great works. Uh, it says that because of their unbelief, he wasn't able to do a lot of things. And some people have wondered what that's all about. And a lot of my explanation for that is in order to receive God's blessings, you first have to be able to believe that God is going to give you or can give you the blessing. Because if you don't believe it, you can't get it. This is not name it and claim it stuff. This is about openness and willingness to be a recipient of God's grace. But he's in Nazareth. He's teaching. He is doing some miraculous signs. And the response of the people is, where does this guy get this? We know who you are. You're nothing special. You're just the carpenter's son. In fact, if you get the people that are in that town that were old enough to remember when the whole Mary and Joseph scandal first started, they'd be like, we know even more about you than you would ever want anyone to know. We know that you were illegitimate. You were conceived in sin. How is it that you can do any of this stuff? We know who you are. You're on the wrong side of the tracks guy. 
So that's the first example that we really get of strong response and decision being made about who Jesus is. Granted, it's the wrong one, but it's very clear that these folks made a very clear decision about this Jesus. The next one we get is Herod. So Jesus goes out. He's doing great things. He's teaching. And people are starting to speculate about who Jesus is. And Herod's response is, oh no. This is John the Baptist come back from the dead. I'm toast. Now, why does he think this? Well, you have to understand the, the little bit that I cut out here. So, I didn't cut it out to save you from any grotesqueness. Um, the omission of John the Baptist's execution here isn't because it's not relevant. It's actually very much so. But it's more for time's sake and also to be able to, again, kind of keep a nice flow of, of, of the pattern here because John's execution is like a little side note story that Mark is telling here to... Uh, help everybody understand a point, which I'm going to get to here in just a second. But the, the whole deal surrounding John's execution is just nasty and grotesque all around. We have, have Herod, who is this really bad, bad, uh, bad actor. He's, he's a very poor example of a political leader. And we get this very... Uh, a lurid story about his stepdaughter coming and dancing for him for the head of John the Baptist. And I'm just going to say this is not a nice daddy-daughter dance. This is just bizarre, twisted, messed up stuff that's going on in this family. But the deal here with Herod is Herod did not want to execute John because he was afraid of John. But he does it anyway because He's weak, and he can't say no. The detailed description of John's execution is probably to help drive the point home for the readers that John has fulfilled his purpose. His purpose was not to be a tag team with Jesus. His purpose was to prepare the way for Jesus. And when that happened, his job was done. There will be no dynamic duo. There will not be the great John and Jesus taking on the world together, unstoppable. But it's going to be the one king, all alone, taking on the entire world by himself. But Herod's response is panic. Here, I've done this terrible thing, and now the chickens have come home to roost. The third response is the hungry people. Now, what are they hungry for? Well, eventually they're going to be hungry in the stomach, but they're not initially hungry in the stomach. They're hungry spiritually. Why is it that they go and follow Jesus out in the middle of podunk nowhere? It's not because they envisioned that they were going to get a free meal. It's because Jesus had what they needed. Their response to Jesus is, look, in all of this messed up world that we're in, you are our only hope. And then we have the disciples that essentially have two separate responses. 
The first is when Jesus tells them, and it's kind of funny how Jesus, they say, what do you want us to do about all this crowd? They need to go back, they need to go home, they need to go get food. Jesus says, well, why don't you give them something to eat? And their response is, well, you're asking the impossible. What are you expecting us to do, to pull down bread from thin air? Jesus' response, if they had been said that, probably would have been one more or less. Their response is a response of, what do you expect us to do? How can we do this thing? And their other response, when Jesus comes walking on the water, is outright terror. He's a ghost. Now, if you wanted my opinion of which response to be, seems to be the most common response in our world to Jesus, then... My pragmatic response is, is it's going to depend. It's going to depend on who you talk to. All of these responses come into play in one way, shape, or form. For the masses of unbelievers in our world, I think the response of the Nazareans is pretty much on point. Oh, Jesus was a nice teacher. He said some nice stuff. He's a nice guy, but he got his, what happens to all great teachers, he got killed, and that was that, and... And he's, he's nothing special. He said some good stuff, but so did Confucius. That would be the secular response to Jesus. There's a tendency among many secular people to lump Jesus in with other great teachers and essentially say, ah, said good things, but that's it. Now, there are some people in authority in our world it can be political authority, but it doesn't have to be political authority, but it can be. But those that have power and authority, sadly some preachers can be this way. But there are some that basically have the Herod response, which is fear. They have done terrible, terrible things in order to achieve their power and their authority that they have. But when they catch little snips of what Jesus says, because what Jesus says convicts us of where we fail, they hear these little bits of what Jesus says, and it pricks their conscience, and they become terrified. They, their response is, I've been found out. If it ever gets out, I'm ruined. Then there are so, so many people in our world that are just desperate for someone to save them. I'm not talking about just wanting a handout. They want their lives to change. I talked to a friend on the phone a while back about the, the struggle and the difficulty of, of making the leap from... From just doing good for people, which, which we need to do. But the leap from just doing good for people. To introducing them to Jesus. And he had indicated that those that are really hurting, not just financially. In fact, some of them aren't hurting financially at all. But those who have what we would call poverty of the soul. Those that realize and look at this world and say this world is not the way it should be. 
My life is not the way it should be. It needs to be different. I want it to be different. I want something better. I want something more. These are who we're talking about. Those are the ones that are like those that were seeking Jesus' bread. Not just the bread that he fed them with, but the spiritual bread that he fed them with. Because that's the reason why they followed him out in the wilderness to begin with, is because of his teaching and what he could do. And those are the ones that we should be focusing on reaching, but I digress. And then I think most of us probably respond like the disciples in some way, shape, or form. Either we say something like this, Jesus, I want to do great things for you, but I've got bills to pay, the kids are sick, the car needs fixed, my boss is breathing down my neck. Or we respond in outright fear when we mess up. Oh, Jesus, I messed up again, and I know you'll never forgive me, but please just give me one more chance. The thing that I find interesting in these passages is that as people are beginning to respond to Jesus, Jesus responds to their response. In other words, he has an answer to what people have to say about him. To those that say, we know who you are, you're nothing special. What happens immediately after he leaves Nazareth is he draws his closest followers together and he empowers them to do some of the things that he was doing. And if you look at the things that he was doing, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, these are what, as a podcast I like to listen to, refers to as Yahweh stuff. This is stuff that only the sovereign God is, has complete authority over doing. Because Jesus empowers those that follow him to do some of these things. This is giving an indication of who this guy is. So to those that are saying you're nothing special, Jesus gives people the ability to do stuff that only God can do. Jesus is doing it through them. To the Herods of the world, this is the one I like the most. To the Herods of the world, he doesn't really actually seem to even have the time of day for them. If you read elsewhere in the Gospels of the really the one and only encounter that Jesus has with King Herod, he's brought in to King Herod and he has virtually nothing to say to the guy. Has no use for him. He has more to say to the Roman despot Pontius Pilate than he does to the actual regional authority. He actually has a, what we would call a philosophical discourse with Pontius Pilate. He has nothing for Herod. For those that have authority, that abuse it, nothing. To those that are yearning for what he has, to those that are willing to follow him into the wilderness for what he has, he, through his closest followers, satisfies them. And we actually get this twice because here, here's something else that I really like. So after Jesus walks on water and they land the boat again, you have to understand Jesus in Mark is going back and forth across this sea. So the first time he went across, he lands in the Gerasenes. And this is where that guy with all the demons in him was. All right. He casts out the demons. And what does everybody do? Everybody tells him and says, look, you're too much for us. 
go away. You, you're scaring us with all this stuff. Go away. The guy that had the demons cast out of him wants to go with Jesus. Jesus says, no, you need to stay here and tell everybody about the good things God has done for you. Well, Jesus has essentially come back to the area. Look at the response now. Everybody comes out of the woodwork to see this guy. They're begging him for healing. And you want to know why? It's the one guy. It's the one guy. The guy that he cast all the demons out of. He, he tells him, go and tell everybody the good things that God has done for you. This is why he left him there. Because when Jesus comes back, the people are ready for him. And for his followers that have doubts, he does the impossible. He multiplies the bread and the fish, which is a direct allusion, not illusion, but an allusion, meaning pointing back to something, to the book of Exodus. When the Hebrews are out in the wilderness and they're moaning and complaining and griping at God and Moses saying, look, you bring us out in the middle of nowhere to die. And God brings bread out of nowhere. What has Jesus just done? He just brought bread out of nowhere, using his followers to do it. And then he walks on water. He is the creator God who brought order out of the chaos of the waters. Because remember what it said in Genesis. The Spirit of the Lord went out over the surface of the waters. As I mentioned earlier, in a couple weeks, we will get to the great climax of this part of the drama when Jesus asks, Who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? Sadly, our world tries to write off Jesus as just another teacher, another do-gooder, but hear me on this. We can respond to Jesus in any number of different ways. We might question his authority. We can be afraid of him. We might write him off as some extremist. But the one thing that we do not have is the luxury of indifference. You cannot come to Jesus and get to walk away saying, whatever. You have to make a decision about this guy one way or another. And a lack of decision is a decision in and of itself. Every human being must come to some kind of decision about who this Jesus is. We can either take the evidence that is given and try to twist ourselves through hoops, trying to either downplay the things that Jesus said and did and just say he was a great man, we can take the evidence about him and see him as a threat to our worldly comfort and try to stop him. Or we can take and look at the evidence that we are given about this Jesus and come to what I say is the only reasonable conclusion that a logical person can make. This man is God. Amen.